So today we begin a brand new adventure that's actually based upon an old and familiar concept. Over the past two and a half years, you all have heard me make this statement probably at least a hundred times. Everything God desires to do in and through your life, he will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with him. Everything. Not just part, everything. So through messages to emphasize that particular relationship, I have gone back and I've shared two guiding principles through a lot of messages. The goal in life is to know God, John 17, 3. The daily goal is to spend time with him. Christianity is not about rules and restrictions. It's not about to-do list, although I love a good to-do list. It's not about our serving, our Bible reading, our prayer, our giving, any of those different things. And, and I will be the first to tell you a lot of your maturity in Christ is going to come back to things like your attendance in your Bible reading, in your prayer, and your serving, and your giving. All of those things are great, but listen, they're never supposed to take the place of relationship. They are all to happen out of the overflow of relationship with Christ. And it is to lead back towards him. So I ring the relationship bell a lot. There's a chance that some of you wake up in the middle of the night with gospel statements going through your mind. <laughs> Humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sin separated us from that relationship. Nothing we could do to reconcile the relationship ourselves. And hey, if that's the case, I rejoice in either your, let's call it gospel-saturated sleep or your gospel-initiated insomnia. One way or the other, I'm going to rejoice in that. The, the gospel is key to everything that we do. Now, I know that a lot of times I am going to sound like a broken record because I bring the same statements again and again. But, but here's the thing. When you have experienced freedom in Christ, you want everybody else to experience the same thing. I feel like the, the psalmist Sunday after Sunday, just taste and see that the Lord is good. Just get you a nibble. Just a little bit, just taste, and I guarantee you, you will want more and more and more. The Christian life, it's about relationship. It reminds me of a statement by G.K. Chesterton. He said this, the only two things that can satisfy the soul are a person and a story, and even the story must be about a person. We are relational beings. We want to be able to talk to and interact with and have fellowship with others. And, and when we're around other people, we want more than facts. We want story. So if I were to ask you, tell me about your childhood, I'm not looking for vital statistics. <laughs> Don't tell me something like, I was born January the 22nd, 1963 at St. Anne's Hospital to Harold and Mitch Glaskin. I was nine pounds, six ounces, 21 and a half inches long. I resided at 125 Maple Street. That's not what I'm looking for. That's cerebral. It's not story. I want you to tell me about the time you got beat up by the bully down at the end of the streets. I want you to tell me about your hobbies your vacation disasters. 
I, I want you to tell me about your, your pet raccoon by the name of George. Like, I, I want to hear story. I, I want to hear pieces of your life. Tell me about the things that, that made a difference. Tell me about the things that stirred your heart and your passion and relationships. Paint a picture of your life. Stories stir our hearts. Facts just fill our minds. So the story of Jesus, it is told by the gospel writers. But Mark is really, really unique. Mark is unique for a number of reasons. It's considered to be the shortest of the gospel accounts. Sometimes it's called the postcard gospel. It's also unique in the fact that it's considered to be the oldest of the gospel accounts. It's, it's also unique in this piece. Mark spent 34% of his entire letter on one week in the life of Christ. Just one. Now, just like the other gospel writers, he also shares about Jesus' life and teachings and his miracles. But starting in chapter 11, Mark moves from events spanning three years to events happening over one week. From Mark chapter 11 all the way through chapter 16, it is one continuous story of the final week in the life of Christ prior to the cross. It's the Passion Week. Now, I'm excited because we're going to study those chapters. I'm excited because I'm looking forward to sharing the events and the culture and the connections and all the beautiful pieces that tie this story together. But I've also got a concern from the very beginning of this series. I'm concerned that in teaching details and connections, that we get so engrossed in the facts that we miss the story. It really doesn't matter if we can name every official that Jesus had to stand in front of if we don't understand why he was tried. It doesn't matter if we could tell our friends the penny weight of the nails that were used to crucify him if we don't understand why he had to die. It doesn't matter if we can pinpoint the exact moment that he rose from the dead if we don't understand the significance of the resurrection itself. Information about Jesus is not the goal. Intimacy with Christ is the goal. If we miss relationship, we've missed the purpose. We've missed the substance. So today we start on a 10-week journey that shares the greatest story ever told about the greatest person who ever lived. The story begins in creation and it leads us through the cross. After setting up the story today, we are going to take Sunday after Sunday and walk through the events of the Passion Week. Next Sunday, we're going to get a jump start on Palm Sunday. We're, we're dealing with it this next week. But we're going to talk about what happened on Palm Sunday, the following Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday, the Thursday, all the way through the Passion Week. And this study is going to end on Resurrection Sunday as we get a chance to study what happened and why that was so significant. I am praying all the way through this series that we don't get so excited about information that we miss the story. I'm praying that there will be people who, when they hear the incredible story of Jesus, they will come to know him as Lord and Savior. I am also praying that 
all of us, regardless of how long you have walked with Jesus, the story, the pieces will stir your passion to know him more. The only two things that can satisfy the soul are a person and a story. And even the story must be about a person. This is going to be the story of Jesus, who he is, what he did, why it matters, and how one week changed the world. We got a lot to cover. Let's start in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask from the very beginning of this series that, that our hearts are already stirred towards knowing you more. May your spirit illuminate our minds, bring connections together. May the pieces of the story begin to fit in a way that we get more and more excited about our faith and more excited about knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. So to really get into a story, you have to limit your distractions. And after researching the events surrounding the Passion Week, I can foresee some possible predictable distractions, and I want to address those before they become actual issues. So here's the first of those. My goal is not to give a moment-by-moment -moment timeline of the Passion Week for the sake of knowledge alone. Knowledge by itself puffs us up with pride. That's not the goal. My goal is to share the story of Jesus so that people are awakened by the gospel to a life of knowing Christ and making him known. Second, differing theories do not detract from the reality of what Christ did. Inside of two hours of study, I found 15 different theories related to events and timelines connected to the Passion Week. Now, I need you to know this from the very beginning. All of the theories agree on what happened during that week. They all agree. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. He was tried and condemned. He was crucified on a cross between two thieves. He died a horrible death. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and he rose again bodily from the grave three days later. It all happened exactly as the Bible declared. What happened is not in question. When each event occurred is where the different theories begin to differ. That brings us to our third statement. Misunderstandings about the Jewish day account for most of those differences. Now, any amount of time in this day would constitute a full day, but in Judaism, they looked at a day going from sunset to sunset. Sunset to sunset. Any amount of time in that day constituted a full day. We define a day as a 24-hour block of time that begins at midnight and goes to the next midnight. So in your notes, there is a handy-dandy little graph to help you see how this can be a little bit confusing. If you look at the top, that would be a Jewish way of looking at days. It goes from, say, sunset, which would be maybe around 6 p.m., to the next sunset. That might be Thursday. And, and then sunset to sunset, that's now Friday. We would look at that, and part of that would be on our Wednesday. And then part of that would be on Thursday. And then we'd be over in Friday. So the reason I say that is to help minimize 
the confusion, and there's still going to be a little bit of confusion. To help minimize it, I want to do my best to share what happened in 24-hour blocks of time. So if you'll notice on our timeline in the back, it has day one and day two and day three. And, and the reason I say that is because there will be some Sundays where those days will line up with the exact day you have in your mind, and it's going to make you feel so happy. It's going to be wonderful. And then there's going to be times that I'm going to say something like, hey, that happened on Wednesday, or that happened on Thursday. And then you're going to walk away confused and all mad, and you're going to start grumbling, and you're going to write things on social media. And I just want to avoid all of that. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about 24-hour blocks of time. Now, let me also say... After researching Jewish tradition and studying historical accounts and trying my best to be able to rightly interpret the Word of God, I'm only going to share one of these theories. It's one of the most prominent ones, but I'm only sharing one. I, I just need you to know, I recognize there's differing ideas out there. But if we were to share every theory and every timeline, there would be no way of actually keeping the flow of the story itself. And that's the big piece. We need to hear and understand the story. So let's begin. If you have ever read a novel, you know the first couple of chapters are extremely important. It sets the stage for the story itself. Those chapters provide context and characters and crucial information for the story to actually make sense. So in the next 25 minutes or so, I am going to walk you through the first maybe five chapters of what we could call God's redemptive story. Without these chapters, we are missing the context for the Passion Week. These chapters flow into the Passion Week. So where does our story begin? Well, our story literally begins in the beginning. Okay, so look in your notes. You'll notice chapter one would be God creates everything. Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God already existed. There is no attempt to explain God's whereabouts or God's origin. There is just a clear take it or leave it proposition in the beginning, God. Before the world was formed, before the planets were hurled into space, before humanity breathed its first breath, God is already there. And according to scripture, God spoke everything into existence through the power of his word. The creative verses follow a very unique pattern. It says this, then God said, and so it was. Then God said, and so it was. So for example, Genesis 1, 9, then God said, let the waters below and the heavens be gathered in one place, and so it was. Then Genesis 1:11. then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and so it was. And then Genesis 1, 20 and 24, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth. And so it was. So in our story, it begins with a God who is so powerful, so unparalleled in his creative potential that he speaks his desires and his desires become reality. For five days, he creates the beauty and the splendor of the universe as we know it. Five separate times we come into this other pattern phrase of creation. It says, and there was evening and there was morning one day. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. 
And there was evening and there was morning, a third day. Not morning and evening, but evening and morning. The reason I bring that up is because the Jewish people did not just decide to randomly look at a day different than everybody else. They are following a pattern that was established there in creation. In fact, that pattern even to this day is one that's based on a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So for five days, God speaks and things happen. Mountains and trees appear. Oceans and fish arrive, atmosphere and birds, pond scum and platypuses are appearing everywhere. Like it is a creative throwdown for five solid days. And then on day number six, he creates humanity. At this point, the scene is set. The world is formed. The characters are in place and the drama is about to begin. That takes us to chapter two. Humanity sins and messes it up. Now, in Scripture, this is referred to as the fall. It is found over in Genesis chapter 2. And it does not mean that Adam and Eve just stumbled on some briars in the garden. Instead, they rebelled against their creator, and it sends creation into a tailspin. In the beginning, everything was good. Everything was perfect. Adam and Eve were living in a perfect setting, experiencing a perfect life, enjoying a perfect relationship with God. But God gave one command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That doesn't sound hard. That's not overly complex. They could eat whatever else they wanted. It was fine. They could do whatever else they wanted. That was fine. They could paint polka dots on zebras. Nobody would be upset with that. They could wear white after Labor Day. Nobody was going to judge them. They could go to work naked. It's in the word. They only had one thing. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God even told them the consequences if they disobeyed. In the day you do, you will surely die. Now, maybe you've heard the story. The serpent deceives Eve. She involves Adam. They both disobey, and suddenly they are aware of good and evil. Their eyes are open. Scripture says that they recognize their nakedness, and they felt shame. And about that time, God shows up. Have you ever noticed God has a knack of showing up when we mess up? God shows up. This time, it's different. Because when God shows up this time, instead of saying hello, they go and hide themselves. Disobeying God did not bring physical death on that day. It brought spiritual death. Death in its most basic form is separation. When, when we die physically, our spirit is separated from our bodies. When Adam and Eve died spiritually, their spirit was separated from this relationship that they had enjoyed with their creator. In that moment, God taught them a lesson they would never forget. The penalty of sin is death. Death in all of its facets are now in this world. So if chapter one was about the beginning of life, then chapter two would have been about the exit of life. That now brings us to chapter three. The effect of sin is felt 
Adam and Eve's decision to disobey God, it had a ripple effect on everyone and everything. They were removed from the garden. A pain was increased in childbirth. The ground became cursed and the earth no longer willingly yielded its bounty. One of their sons kills another one of their sons. Sickness and disease are introduced. Pride and arrogance define their ancestors. The corruption of the world was so bad that God sent a flood, wiped it out, and started over with Noah and his immediate family. But listen, while the world got another start, it didn't get a new start. Noah was a sinner when he went on the ark. And the brother was a sinner when he came off the ark. The floodwaters had barely subsided before scandal now hits Noah's family. Drunkenness and sexual misconduct marred his legacy. His descendants chase after other gods. Sin of every kind and stench and flavor emerges over the cities, specifically cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now wars happen, idolatry happens, deception happens, disputes happen. All of creation is reeling under the weight of rebellion. But God wasn't finished with us. God still pursued humanity. God instituted a relational covenant with a man by the name of Abram, who would be known as Abraham. In this covenant, Abraham and his descendants, God said, if they love and obey God, then he would be their God and they would be his people. That is personal and that is relational. God promised that he would bless those who bless them and he would curse those who curse them. So yes, the effect of sin was felt, but even so, the grace of God was still present. God could have completely started over, wiped Adam and Eve off the map. He, he didn't have to institute a covenant with Noah. He didn't have to institute one with Abraham. He didn't have to do it, but he did. Sin was great, but grace was greater. Amen. That now brings us to chapter four. Redemption is coming. From the creation account through the covenants with Noah and Abraham, we can see God pursuing humanity and calling us back into relationship with himself. We were created for relationship with God and God pursues humanity in order to reignite, to restore that fellowship. So years later, after God established this covenant with Abraham, God's covenant people, the Hebrew people, find themselves in bondage in Egypt. They're slaves of Pharaoh. They're being mistreated. And God heard their cries, and he taps an unlikely candidate to lead his people to freedom. He taps a guy by the name of Moses. Now, you might say, what's wrong with Moses? Why is he an unlikely candidate? Well, I'll give you a couple reasons. The brother was 80 at this point. That's not exactly the time for a career change. He was kind of in a dead-end job. He was a shepherd, not only for his own sheep, but his father-in-law's sheep at this time. Oh, he had a rap sheet for murder. He had a stuttering problem. He had no self-confidence. But listen, the man had an awesome name. The name Moses literally translates as Savior. God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. 
He describes the cries of his covenant people. And he says, I want you to go before Pharaoh and lead my people out. Now, Moses declines. He gives a couple of lame excuses, but God is persistent in this. So in order to help Moses have the confidence to go before Pharaoh, God turned Moses' staff into a serpent. And when he grabbed it by the tail, it turned back into a staff. That's awesome. Then God said, put your hand in your cloak. When he did, he pulled it out and had leprosy. When he put it back in and pulled it out again, it was clean. So now he's got two awesome tricks. And God says to him, go to Pharaoh and tell him the Lord, the God of Israel said, let my people go. Now there's a couple of issues here. Uh, First, Pharaoh thought he was God. So when Moses shows up and says, um, the real God wants you to know, the imposter God, that he doesn't like how you're treating his people, and he says, you need to let his people go. And at the same time, he knows you're not going to listen, so he's going to send his miracles against Egypt. And oh, by the way, did I show you my trick? Bam! And he throws his staff on the ground. (laughs) And it turns into a snake. And listen, Pharaoh wasn't impressed. Pharaoh told his sorcerers and wise men to do the same thing, and theirs became a snake. By the way, Satan will counterfeit God many times. Be careful about watching for a miracle and somehow thinking it's from God. The enemy has power as well. Not the power unlimited like our God, but there's power that is there. So if you'll remember the story, it it was probably a little embarrassing at that moment to, to Moses. I'm sure when he sees those other staffs become snakes, he's like, man, I thought that was my trick. And and now theirs does the same thing. But he was very quickly redeemed in the moment because his snake ate their snakes. Some of you are like, where is he getting all of that from? Hey, listen, read the Old Testament occasionally. It's some great stuff in there. So Moses goes back and forth with Pharaoh. Pharaoh continues to say no, and God sends plague after plague. There were 10 plagues in all, and with the exception of one, they all targeted Egyptian deities. God turns the Nile into blood. He sent frogs, lice, flies, a death of cattle, boils on people, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally, the death of the firstborn. That last plague is going to be unbelievably important for this story. So that brings us to chapter 5. Passover reminds us of redemption. God told Pharaoh what would happen if he did not release his people. The the previous plagues, they, they targeted Egyptian gods, but in this final plague, God would kill the firstborn of the house, both man as well as beast. Now think about it in Pharaoh's case. By killing the firstborn in Pharaoh's house, it would kill the next Pharaoh who also thought he was going to be God. God told the Hebrew people exactly what they were to do in Exodus chapter 12. On the 10th day of Nisan, every house was to choose a lamb without blemish and without spot. These dates are going to be crucial in our story. They were to keep the lamb with them until the 14th day of Nisan. And then they were to kill it before the congregation and between the evenings. They were to take the blood of that lamb, put it on the side post of the house and on the 
lintel around the door. And on the night of the 14th, God would go through the land and he would kill every firstborn, both man and beast. But when he came to the homes that had the blood around the door, he would pass over those and no harm would come to the family or to their possessions. And God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Those who obeyed were protected. Those who disobeyed, they lost the firstborn, both human as well as animal. Pharaoh released God's people, and a brand new journey now begins. But being released on a new journey doesn't mean all the problems are gone. Right after this release, there's that whole situation that happened at the Red Sea. They get over to the other side and they find themselves arguing with each other and God institutes the commandments and then there's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and all the issues they ran into with the conquest of Canaan. But if you get that story, what we've just described, the pieces are now set because the Passion Week of Jesus will mirror the story you just heard. In his final week before the cross, Jesus will relive that story. He will redefine its parts, and he will redeem it all for his glory. We see all of those pieces, the entrance of life and the exit of life, the effect of sin and the wonders of grace, the pursuit of God for rebellious people, the covenants that lead towards redemption. The picture of Passover will move from Moses, who is a type of Savior, to Jesus, who is the one and only true Savior. The dates and the customs and the events and the sayings and the people and the rebellion, all of it has a purpose. By the time we finish, you will see more than ever that there is not a single piece that can interfere with the sovereign plan of God. Nothing. Even in the most difficult moments, God uses things to keep pointing people back towards himself. I want to encourage you to be with us through this series. So as we finish, I'm going to give you all a couple of pieces of homework. These are your response pieces. Please be with us for the next nine Sundays unless there's no other choice. I recognize you can watch online, I get that. But there is something unique about being in the room with the people of God and going on a journey of discovery together. This is a series. If you miss a Sunday, you will miss a lot of key pieces that connect to the next Sunday. Also, please invite others to join you on this. Sometimes people are afraid to go to church. They don't know what to expect. But a lot of times people are willing to listen to a story. And this is a study about the greatest story ever told about the greatest person who ever lived. Here's the next piece. Pray that God will lead each of us to know him more. The goal is not to just fill our minds with information. The goal is to know him more. The goal is to grow in our relationship with him. So week after week, when you're getting ready to come to church, pray, God, help me to know you today. May your word come alive. May, may I see you as you desire. And here's the last piece. Please read Mark 11 through 16 at least five to 10 times in the next several weeks. I, I wanna do that 
Because even though I'm going to bring in pieces from the other gospel writers, those chapters are going to be our blueprint. They're going to be the place that we start in chapter 11 and we begin to describe the events that are going on. And it is so important that we know what's coming and understand what we're about to get into. There's also something really important about coming to church prepared. Listen, I'm just glad to see people. So don't think I'm upset that you're here. Let me just say, when you come and say, God, would you meet with me today? Would you help me to see you? May I not just learn information, may I grow to know you more. It's amazing how much God meets us in those moments. Pray and ask God to do that as you're reading through those chapters. So as we close out this service, I'm gonna give you a preview. This is one that some of you know by heart. It's the thing that you've been thinking about in your sleep at night. If you wonder what this whole redemptive story of God is all about, it's called the gospel. Here it is in six statements. Humanity was created for relationship with God. We just studied that piece in creation. Our sin separated us from that relationship. We just heard about that with the fall. There was nothing that we could do to reconcile the relationship ourselves. We understand that through the law and through 40 years of wandering and all the stories. But Jesus did for us what we could not do. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Why? Because the penalty of sin is death. What Adam and Eve learned in the garden is what we're still facing this very day. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead bodily three days later that we might have life, not religion, life. He offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He came and he offers eternal life to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. That's the story of the gospel. But that story is one that has meaning, depth, power. All the pieces happen in this final week, this passion week in the life of Christ. So I don't know where you're at today in your spiritual journey, but I want to encourage you. If you do not know without a doubt that you know Jesus is Lord and Savior, make today the day. In just a few moments, I'm going to have our pastors and some pastor's wives come to the front. There's going to be some counselors who are up here as well. We're going to sing a final song of invitation for this service. But we're going to open up a time of invitation, open up the altar. There might be people that you've got distractions in your life right now, and you know unless God removes those distractions, you're not going to be able to concentrate and focus. Let today be the day you ask God, would you remove those? It might be that there's people in here that you've been coming for a while, and you've been hearing about the pieces of the gospel and hearing about Jesus, but you're not sure. Like, you've still got questions come talk to one of the pastors or the pastor's wives today. It might be that you're looking for a church home and today might be the first time you've ever walked in here and you're like, man, this church has some 
fun looking people and, and, and you know, the, the music was incredible and, and they're talking about Jesus, that sounds great. I, all I can say is if you got questions about the church, come talk with one of the pastors or pastor's wives. Our desire is that we can walk with you in this incredible journey that we get to experience as a Christian. So if you would, let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask today that you would allow this 10-week journey to be one that solidifies the faith of so many, that it be one that enables some who have questions to all of a sudden see things with clarity, and Lord, you draw them into relationship with yourself. God, we pray that you would do that. We pray, Lord, that by the time we finish this, that we're not just excited about new information, but Lord, that we are excited about knowing you more, that we see you more clearly, that, that your plan for this world is, is clearer than it's ever been. God, we need you to do that. Lord, we cannot do it ourselves. So God, we submit before you and ask today, would you use this series in this season for your sake and your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.